Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. Joining me today is Natalie on this episode, mostly because Aaron doesn't actually watch Game of Thrones. Uh, and joining to discuss Game of Thrones is Ilya Soman, professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University and adjunct scholar at Cato. Welcome back, Ilya. Thank you very much for having me. And I also think it should go without saying, but this will be a spoiler-heavy episode of Free Thoughts. We will be going all the way through the finale of Game of Thrones. So if you've not seen all the way through and want to avoid spoilers, I advise uh, coming back and listening to it later. So first of all, I think in general for Game of Thrones on a broad level, why do you think it was so popular? I think it was popular because it really had something for almost everybody. It had things for people who love intrigue and plot lines and sex and romance. It had a lot, obviously, for fantasy fans. And obviously, of course, it had both graphic sex and graphic violence, uh, which always increased the audience. And perhaps most relevant for us today, it had a lot of interesting messages and themes related to political issues. So do you think Game of Thrones is really a story about how power corrupts? That's certainly a major theme of it, uh, both how power corrupts, but also how even if it doesn't corrupt the person as an individual, uh, often the system prevents even a seemingly good ruler from actually doing good, uh, and they end up doing more harm instead. Do you think that this is a broader exa- question at the beginning? And maybe you have insight on this, but when George R. R. Martin was writing it, it seems like at the beginning of the show – the Starks are the main characters, and then it seems like they're no longer the main characters for a very long time. Uh, does that? Do you think that wasn't the way he thought of it, or do you think he kind of worked through the characters and kind of went away from them in some way? Or could you say it's the story of the Starks and their relationship to power? Is that simplifying it too much? I don't know for sure, but I think it's a common literary technique that you start focusing on just a few characters and gradually expand outward, particularly in a book a series like Song of Ice and Fire, which is a big complicated fictional world, uh, but he knows he can't introduce this whole massive thing all at once. So he starts with the Starks and gradually builds off from that, though he has also said that what he ultimately wanted to do is at the end come back to refocus on the Starks and also on Daenerys Targaryen, the opposed ice and fire. So the plot becomes more and more complex over time. Uh, but I think, at least according to what he what has been revealed publicly, that it was his plan to gradually uh, simplify over time and refocus on uh, some central characters, including the Starks, which is, of course, is what the uh, TV series ultimately does, though I think in a much more heavy-handed way, perhaps, than Martin might have preferred. Now, if you're listening to this, you probably watched the show at least to some degree. But at least the beginning of the of the show and the books, what is the nature of the political system that we're in uh, and how does that compare to say – what we understand of medieval political systems, is it pretty much right on track with that or with some interesting variances? The system is to a large extent an absolute monarchy, though it's also the case that the lords of the respective seven kingdoms, which are united under the monarchy, do have some significant degree of autonomy. I would say that the king, at least at the start, uh, probably has somewhat more power than most medieval kings actually did, who were more constrained uh, both by the structures of the feudal system and by there being a more independent church and also in the real medieval world, armies didn't move quite as fast or as efficiently as they seem to move in, <laughs> uh, in the books and even more so in the TV show. It's because that's a really boring part of it. The episode of the army just moving is very boring. I can tell you that. I, I totally understand why they don't want to spend too much time on logistics. At the same time, Napoleon supposedly said that amateurs study strategy, but professional 
National Study Logistics. Uh, so I think uh, while in the early season of the show, the logistics are at least somewhat reasonable, in the later seasons, they do somewhat get out of control and become utterly implausible. Can you also explain how the North interacts with the rest of Westeros? I think that brings a really interesting component to it, especially towards the end. The North, I think, is very interesting. Uh, this is the, the part of Westeros which is ruled by the Starks. It's the most remote part of the Seven Kingdoms. And both historically and during the period of the show, it tends to have the most autonomy uh, and also the most tension between it and the central government. It has its own distinctive culture, to some extent, even its own distinctive religious beliefs. And uh, of course, the North had a history of being an independent kingdom before the Targaryen monarchs conquered it several hundred years before the start of our show. Uh, so one crude analogy that I sometimes like to use uh, is that the North is sort of the Quebec of Westeros, uh, <laughs> just as Quebec is a distinct uh, uh, province within Canada with its own culture and its own occasional aspirations for independence. So the North uh, is more culturally distinct than most of the rest of Westeros, with the possible exception of Dorne. And it has at times this hankering for independence that, of course, we see explode during the course of the series. Do you see the existence of the the king, the central king of the Seven Kingdoms? When we have understood that in history, for example, after the Wars of the Roses uh, and the the Orcs and the Lancasters, we have tons of violence for a very long period of time, and then they all kind of seem to sometimes stop fighting after agreeing that someone is the king. Do you think that is as much a sort of strategy for diminishing violence that if we all agree on the king and that that's the, one of the predominant reasons that's done uh, or are there other sort of more political sort of political ideas that are going into that or it's just after a long period of fighting, which seems to have predated the show, right? So Robert Baratheon had gone through a civil war to get, take his throne and is everyone sort of not fighting because they get sort of sick of it after a while? One of the standard rationales historically for hereditary monarchy is the idea that it prevents uh, civil war and struggles for power. If everybody agrees that uh, this person is the king and then uh, his son or occasionally his daughter will succeed him, then there shouldn't be any problems. Uh, but of course, historically, in cases like the Wars of the Roses, which certainly helped inspire Martin to write these books, uh, there are cases where there are competing hereditary claims and this disagreement can lead to war. Uh, it is also the case that sometimes after a prolonged cycles of warfare, uh, people might agree uh, to have somebody take the throne, even if that person's claim is not hereditarily spotless. This is actually more or less how the actual Wars of the Roses ended. I would add that uh, in the actual Wars of Roses, the, the amount of violence and destruction was much less uh, than what we see on Game of Thrones, in part because uh, late medieval England couldn't support armies that were as large for as long as Westeros seems to support them. Uh, but nonetheless, there was enough violence and destruction that eventually people agreed to accept the claims of Henry Tudor to the throne, even though from a legalistic hereditary point of view, his claim might not have been that strong. What do we see as the uh, economy of Westeros. This is, I mean, we get there a little bit, but one thing I was wondering watching it was whether or not, if you took that Deidre McCloskey kind of scale, where they were on that, like, had they hit a point where 
merchants and artisans and, and people who just sort of the bourgeois values that Deirdre talks about, uh, had they hit that point or were they kind of on the edge of it or pre that or maybe it depended on where you were in Westeros? The issue of the economic development of Westeros is the subject of much debate among people uh, who follow both the show and the books. Uh, on the one hand, maybe you do see some bourgeois values, particularly not in Westeros but in Essos uh, where uh, Daenerys Targaryen spends much of her time. Time and she conquers parts of Essos. There are clearly areas which are to considerable extent at least dominated by merchants and not by traditional aristocrats, albeit the merchants are ruthless uh, slave traders and the like. Uh, and we also see a significant merchant class in Westeros itself and an artisan class. On the other hand, of course, the dominant class in society, at least in Westeros, are medieval-style aristocrats with a kind of quasi-feudal system, albeit it's not clear that there's the equivalent of serfdom. I think the peasants may be somewhat freer than medieval serfs uh, were. And more to the point, if you read the books uh, and the backstory, it seems like there has been more or less economic stagnation for hundreds or even thousands of years. Uh, and there are different possible ways to explain why this might be the case. Uh, to my mind, however, none of the theories uh, really is enough to account for stagnation this deep and this long, even if there had been just 0.5% growth per year uh, in this society for the previous thousand years, it should be much more advanced uh, than what we see by the time of the start of the show. Uh, and it's difficult to understand why this happens other than that uh, George R. R. Martin wanted to have a setting like Tolkien where there's a quasi-medieval society, but one that has a backstory going back thousands of years and not just you know, a few hundred years, uh, and maybe he didn't fully reckon with the plausibility of stagnation uh, that deep. Could you argue that part of the reason for the stagnation could be absolute power? Possibly. Although, again, uh, if you think about an absolute monarch like the France of the Bourbons and Louis XIV, there is still a lot of economic development. Uh, indeed, an absolute monarch might find it in their interest to foster at least some of that development. Uh, granted, uh, we do know from uh, Fire and Blood, the uh, book that George R. R. Martin recently put out that gives a lot of the backstory of the Targaryen dynasty, we do know that many of the previous kings were insane or incompetent or oppressive. Uh, but it doesn't seem like the insanity and oppression is of such a scale as to cause near total stagnation. Well, the other one that strikes me is the, the maesters. So there's technological advancement and they're they're using technology, but they also – they seem to have an IP problem possibly or at least some sort of way that they're not actually getting the stuff out there developed, shared, refined and all the kind of mechanisms that make technological advance possible. They're using it in some sort of quasi-religious kind of way. The maesters I think are in some ways somewhat analogous to the intellectual role of the Catholic Church and actual medieval European society that they preserve old knowledge and copy it over uh, and sometimes and get, write commentaries and the like, but there's little sense of using a scientific method or using cumulative growth of knowledge uh, and also both the Catholic Church and the Maesters seem to, to some extent at least, stifled the emergence of alternative sources of intellectual insight and competition of ideas and the like. Uh, and so many people have said, well, the Maesters are stifling the development of knowledge, which in turn may stifle economic development, just as some people have traditionally argued that the Catholic Church and its monopoly over intellectual life in medieval Europe may have impeded economic development there. 
there. I think the problem with this theory uh, is that it doesn't seem like the maesters have that much control over the development of knowledge outside the walls of their institutions. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's anything to prevent merchants or lords or others from hiring independent scholars or independent researchers to uh, to innovate. And of course, uh, technological innovation did take place in our actual Middle Ages. Uh, we think of it as a period of stagnation, but in reality, there were important technological innovations in military technology and printing, uh, also in agricultural techniques and artisanal techniques and the like. Uh, so actual medieval society was not nearly as stagnant as Westeros seems to be, at least until season seven or so, where there are suddenly inexplicable uh, technological advances that are not easy to understand, such as uh, <laughs> plate mail armor that seems to float uh, and mass production of thousands of ships within a few months uh, in an area that has very little wood. But that that being said, uh, we we have Steve Davies uh, came on recently. Actually, that episode will air after this one airs. But uh, his new book on the development of the West, he argues that military technology is a huge part of it. Um, and you guys can listen to that episode when it comes out. But it's it, it's a big that that kind of growth, maybe the galvanizing technological advancement within the wars of Europe, he said, was actually really important for them trying to figure out how to keep their fiefdoms and keep power, and then realizing the importance of technology and realizing the importance of an inventor class, all that helped create the kind of big growth. Lots of scholars have pointed to the competition of dozens of states in the European state system uh, in the late Middle Ages, but also in the early modern period as stimulating uh, technological advances. You could then say maybe during the period of a couple hundred years when the Targaryens dominated Westeros, uh, warfare was not stimulating technological development. That still doesn't explain why there wasn't much more development into many hundreds of years before then when Westeros was divided. It also doesn't explain why Essos is stagnant, even though there are multiple independent cities and mercenary bands and the like uh, that compete with each other. Moreover, uh, during the period of Targaryen rule, there were at least two and possibly more significant civil wars, uh, and those uh, could have stimulated development. So uh, while I agreed that warfare often does stimulate some technological advances uh, that only deepens the mystery of why Westeros was so stagnant for so long. Maybe it's it dragons. In that last episode, they're basically F-16s with, with probably even better because the F-16s would run out of bullets or missiles, it would seem like at some point, but the, the dragons just seem to be able to go forever. So indeed, some commentators have said, well, the real reason is dragons uh, in that dragons dominate warfare so much that that just deters anybody from innovating. I think uh, this explanation doesn't really work, and it doesn't really work for a couple reasons. One is, as we see both in the show and actually in the books, the dragons, while powerful weapons, are not invincible. They are sometimes defeated. Uh, secondly, uh, if you read Fire and Blood, the book that has the backstory of the Targaryens, we see that there are probably never more than 10 or 15 or so domesticated dragons in Westeros at any one time. Uh, so there simply are not enough dragons to... Uh, offset the need for other kinds of military forces. And during the last hundred years or so of Targaryen rule, uh, the dragons had almost completely died off. And I would add, of course, that even if the dragons stimulate military technological development, or rather stifle military technological development, uh, they sh wouldn't stifle other kinds of development because they play almost no role in the larger economy. Their only role seems to be 
as weapons, plus also as transport for the Targaryens and favored VIPs. But the dragons uh, you know, don't fulfill any other functions. If anything, one would think that the dragons should stimulate military innovation as people try to develop countermeasures to dragons, as in fact uh, Cersei Lannister and uh, Clyburn try to do they did. in yeah. season seven and eight of the show. And I think if the uh, characters were at all intelligent, at some point they might think the dragons could have economic value outside of warfare. They can lift large loads. Uh, burning things can be useful in various smelting, civilian enterprises. Smelting, smelting yes. Yeah. Uh, the dragons could also work on construction and transportation and the like. Uh, so if anything, uh, dragons should help stimulate economic development. Not to mention that the Targaryens potentially could breed more dragons or others could try to breed more and they could if there were more of them they could be more useful in more role just as you know other kinds of admittedly less powerful domesticated animals also played an important role in economic development right aren't we all sad that we didn't get to see the elephants Yes. Come on. That, yeah, I know. Agree. That, agree. That, that was sad. We have to content ourselves, I guess, with the elephants in the Ward of the Rings movie, which <laughs> played a big role there. So let's talk about Danny. Uh, is she a Castro-style linen revolutionary or uh, should we th- look at her in a different kind of way? Yeah, Daenerys Targaryen and what was done with her in the last season uh, when she turned evil uh, is a very polarizing subject. Uh, it is true that in the last episode, she has this speech about liberating the whole world no matter what the cost and uh, starts killing civilians. I think while there might have been plausible ways to turn her into a villain, the way it was actually done uh, doesn't work too well. Uh, she always, I think, had a desire for uh, near absolute power and to be a ruler. But unlike Castro or Lenin or other uh, revolutionary dictator to whom sh- some people have analogized her after season eight. She never seemed to have a sort of totalitarian ideological vision of how to run society. And until season eight, uh, while she did kill people, it was virtually always either people who were actually fighting against her in war or when she killed captured prisoners, they were virtually always people who had committed horrible atrocities and the like. The bottom line is that up until season eight, uh, Daenerys, while many of her actions were questionable, she had actually been careful not to gratuitously slaughter civilians. She had not killed people simply for speaking out against her and the like, even though people did when she ruled Marine. Uh, And uh, she had shown at least considerably more genuine concern for the common people than nearly all the other rulers that we see on the show. That doesn't mean that she was an ideal ruler or that the either the books or the show were necessarily setting her up to as a paragon of the enlightened monarch or anything like that. But it does mean that the purposeless mass murder that we see where she slaughters an entire city after a city had already surrendered, I think that wasn't in character the way the character had been developed. And the speech that she does during the last episode of season eight, which is the, you know, let's conquer the whole world and, you know, I don't care about the cost and uh, and so on. Uh, that doesn't seem entirely consistent with her previous character either. If she was going to be made into a villain, there are other, I think, more plausible ways to do it. And similarly, if they did want to make her analogous to Lenin or Castro, one would want to see the development of some kind of ideology beforehand, which was more uh, totalizing than what she had before, where her only ideology seemed to be, A, she's entitled to rule Westeros because she's a Targaryen heir, and B, slavery enforced 
Weber are wrong. Other than that, up until that last few episodes, she seemed reasonably content to let ordinary people live their own lives as they see fit, which is very different from uh, Lenin, Castro, and the like. So I think I, we could take a step back here, and you hinted at it a little bit, but could you uh, expand more on the wheel that Danny is trying to break? Because as she does all of these acts, some more violent than others, she continually falls back on the idea of she wants to break the wheel. In season five of the show, in a very interesting conversation with Tyrion Lannister, another important character, uh, Daenerys says that uh, the political system of Westeros is a kind of wheel where first one great house gets into power than another, but ultimately ordinary people continue to be oppressed and very little changes other than you know the identity of the person sitting on the throne. But then she says she wants to break the wheel, by which it is assumed that she means she wants to change the system and not merely replace one king with another uh, or one queen with another. Uh, the difficulty is that uh, even before the horrible villainous turn that she takes uh, in season eight, it doesn't seem like Daenerys has any real idea of how the wheel could be broken or what could be done to affect any kind of systemic change. Uh, her vision of change does, in fact, seem to be that the solution is to put her on the throne rather than the current uh, bad king or bad queen. Uh, and if she's on the throne, she will do better. There is no sense that maybe there should be structural constraints on royal power or that the, maybe the system of succession should be different, anything like that. Uh, and later when Tyrion brings up the issue of how to arrange a succession given that Daenerys has no children and she's infertile or at least she thinks she's infertile, uh, she just sort of brushes him aside and uh, doesn't focus on this. So maybe the genuine tragedy of Daenerys that is worked out well, pretty well over several seasons as opposed to the turn to uh, mass murder in the last season is that she sees that the system needs to be changed but has no real idea of how to change it other than just uh, replace the current rulers with herself. Some revolutionaries do suffer from this problem. They don't know how to rule after they finish their revolution. And the interesting one is Jon Snow, I think, realizes that and doesn't want to rule. He is a revolutionary for a, for a basic purpose. And also Jon Snow is not all that as, as you have like at least endorsed. Uh, he might be a little bit more noble but he's not – he often makes wrong decisions, let's put it that way. But in terms of just being someone who understands that ruling is a different fact than conquering, uh, he seems preferable than, than Danny in that regard. So Jon Snow is both a parallel and an interesting contrast with Daenerys. The parallel is that the both of them are rulers or leaders who have at least some genuine desire to help the common people and who realize at some level that the current system is seriously flawed. Uh, but there is another more negative parallel, which is that Jon Snow has no more of a real vision of institutional reform than Daenerys does. Uh, he doesn't have any idea of how the institution of the monarchy can be reformed or the political system of Westeros more generally. He is different from Daenerys in the sense that it seems like he doesn't have a real taste for power, unlike her. Uh, although in the books, this is somewhat more ambiguous than there is in the uh, TV series. Uh, so in that respect, you can say he's a better person, uh, that he doesn't actually have a lust for power, which he clearly does have. And obviously, nearly all the other aristocratic characters on the show also have. Uh, on the other hand, 
Uh, John is an absolutely terrible political and military leader. Uh, anytime he does get into a position of power, like when he's Lord Commander of the Night's Watch and later when he's king in the North, he quickly ends up alienating many of his followers to point at where they, many of them want to kill him or overthrow him. Uh, and he's also a terrible military strategist. And he rarely, if ever, learns from either his political or his military mistakes. In that respect, he's somewhat inferior to Daenerys up until the last season does learn to be a somewhat more skillful political and military operator, or at least she learns to delegate military decisions to people who are more skilled at it than uh, she is again until season seven and eight when she delegates too many decisions to Tyrion who turns out to make really awful decisions. (laughs) Uh, So I think the more the better interpretation of this is that uh, Daenerys and Jon, while admirable in some ways, also show different ways in which they're flawed leaders and rulers, and that no one person can really be trusted with this kind of power, not even one that seems admirable, uh, though there are some viewers and certainly some characters in the show, especially at the end, who say, well, actually, Jon would make a really good king be- precisely because he doesn't want to really want to be king. Uh, but at the same time, as we see in season eight of the show in one of the more thoughtful scenes, he looks like a king and talks like a king and projects the image of a king, which, of course, was tougher for Daenerys to do, uh, being a woman in a very sexist society. So if all along the show is suggesting that no one can really obtain this kind of absolute power and rule wisely, why do you think at the end, big spoiler here, that um, the show suggests that Sansa can do that in the North? I think this is a little bit of an inconsistency. Uh, Sansa is an interesting character who starts out being naive and spoiled and gradually through horrible trauma, including enduring oppression and sexual assault and the like, uh, she over time becomes wiser and more insightful. Uh, and she is contrasted with John when the two of them lead the North together that she has a much better political and also logistical sense uh, than uh, than he does. She's one of the few characters who pays attention to such issues as the food supply and whether there's enough food to feed the large armies that are tromping around and so forth. And so at the end, when she becomes queen in the North and attains the independence of the North, uh, there is the sense that she's going to be a good ruler. Uh, and that is a little bit inconsistent, albeit it's important to note that she's not going to be the ruler of all Westeros. She's going to be the ruler of just this one region, uh, which is more homogenous. Uh, another interesting question, also we don't know really enough about what the relationship between, the, I guess now, the queen in the north uh, and her subordinate uh, lords is, and bannermen are, is going to be. Uh, it may be she's going to be an absolute monarch, but it may be that her power will be more constrained in some ways. That said, the portrayal of Sansa in the later season, that this sort of uncomplicatedly good ruler uh, is somewhat at odds with the overall message of the show. If it's defensible at all, it's only because they were so rushed in the last couple of seasons uh, that we didn't get to see that much of Sansa actually ruling, and therefore there wasn't much of a chance to introduce more ambiguity into that. Now, some people thought that maybe they would take this turn in the last episode and set up something fundamentally different than a monarchy. Something like a republic or a democracy. And in the last council, uh, Samuel Tarley gets up and he says, maybe the decision about what's best for everyone should be left to well everyone. And it's this moment of like proposing democracy and then everyone mocks it. Um, 
if you were sitting in that council as one of the lords of the houses and you're, you've written about democracy extensively uh, uh, and you've, you've talked about a bit political ignorance and voting, uh, but if you were sitting on that council, what would you say in response to, to Tarly's uh, so I don't know if I would motion. laugh, but I do agree with the wars that were sitting there that democracy was not feasible or realistic given the setup of the show. Given but you seem to think that democracy is almost not feasible or realistic now. <laughs> well, it depends on – I think democracy has severe flaws now and it's not all as crapped up to be. But I think uh, uh, it is still superior to dictatorship, theocracy, uh, oligarchy and so forth. It's just that its powers should be much more limited than they currently are. But within the context of the show, you have a society which is medieval in nature where most people are illiterate and where there's no history of popular participation in government. So under the circumstances, uh, the best you could expect was some sort of movement towards a system where there is broader participation than what we see in the previous season of the show, but probably not all the way up to democracy. Uh, the elective monarchy that they end up setting up is at least a somewhat plausible uh, path out of the institutional impasse that they found themselves in. And there are actual historical parallels like the elective monarchy of Poland uh, and the Holy Roman Empire uh, and some others. A little bit of Magna Carta in there too. The Magna Carta part is not so clear because uh, in that last council, while the lords get the power to select a new monarch when the old one dies, uh, there isn't the grant of any other kind of rights. Uh, unlike in the Magna Carta, where there's actually a whole list of rights, not only rights for the lords, there's even some rights for other groups of people uh, as well. However, if the lords have the power to choose a new monarch, it's not a big step from that to the power to remove a current one. Which, which was in the original Magna Carta. Chapter 61 had a right of removal. Yeah. So the, the original Magna Carta is a much more complicated document than whatever settlement they seem to come to in the last episode of Game of Thrones. Realistically, uh, to do this well might have required more than one episode. And the fact that the whole new political system of Westeros was worked out in a discussion that takes about 10 or 12 minutes. <laughs> this is one of the uh, many flaws that arose from the fact that the last two seasons were very rushed. Uh, nonetheless, the implication is that the new system will be one where the, uh, the king shares power with the nobles to a much greater extent than they did before, albeit there is this complication that given his status as the three-eyed raven, the new king, King Bran, it's possible he will live for thousands of years. Uh, some have analogized him to the god emperor of Dune uh, <laughs> in the Dune book series. Uh, and a king who lives for thousands of years in principle could potentially accumulate an enormous amount of power and influence over time. Uh, though, in fairness, it's not entirely clear that all three-eyed ravens live this long. And also, security arrangements for leaders in Westeros are so awful that it seems very likely that he would be assassinated long before he was actually able to reign for that long. I guess I, I more have a problem with the idea that we settled on Bran because he had the best story. And I think, well, obviously, they weren't making a rule as in like, that's how we're going to choose monarchs. But I would argue that he didn't have the best story. And I'm wondering your take on that. I agree with you. Uh, Tyrion says when he nominates Bran for the kingship, the Bran has the best and most inspiring story. Uh, I don't think this is actually true. Several of the other people sitting around the table at that time actually had better and more interesting stories, uh, including perhaps uh, Sansa, Tyrion himself. Arya. And, uh, Ar Arya. wouldn't take it. Uh, Arya and, and others. Uh, so – the real reason perhaps to choose Bran is, is, is two or threefold. 
Uh, one is that he is the three-eyed raven and therefore has great insight into what's going on. Another is that he seems to be divorced from all normal human desires, including the desire for power and glory, which makes him a less dangerous potential monarch than the ones we've seen before. And finally, Sansa points out that uh, he's infertile and can't have children as a possible argument against him ruling. But if the monarchy is now going to be elective, that's actually a plus in that uh, a king in an elective monarchy who does have children will have a considerable incentive to try to uh, screw with the system to make it possible for them to succeed him, whereas obviously one who does not uh, will not. If you look historically, for example, uh, the Roman Empire, which also had uncertainties about the succession, just like Westeros, the period when it functioned best was when you had a series of five or six emperors, the so-called good emperors, none of whom had surviving male children and therefore they would quote unquote adopt a uh, a successor who was a talented military and political leader, and that person would succeed and would often turn out to be a better ruler than you know just sort of the randomly chosen son of the emperor. When Marcus Aurelius, the last of good emperors, did have an adult son, Commodus, uh, Commodus su succeeded, and he was a turned out to be a horrible emperor. Uh, and so, uh, in that sense, infertility may actually be one of Brand's qualifications for uh, this new elective monarchy, though the characters don't, I think, sufficiently consider the issue of what it means that he's the three-eyed raven and he could live you know, for centuries. Uh, that might throw a wrench in the works. So if we have a situation, though, where let's say we have no hereditary – the issues of, of, of who's going to take the king after the, the monarchy because of say like being infertile so that does away with a lot of the wars that that tend to you know happen in monarchical systems and we have a, a very not power hungry wise person ruling this um is in that situation can we say that such a ruling system even though it's a monarchy isn't better than democracy i would say a couple of things one is in the real world we're unlikely to find somebody who is free of normal human desires for power wealth granted, glory granted, and yes. the like so part of the message here is that in the real world where we don't have three-eyed ravens, at least think we don't, uh, <laughs> uh, monarchy is not such a good idea. Uh, also, uh, it seems unlikely that over time you could limit the monarchy to people who don't have children. The Roman Empire, in effect, lucked out through these five or six emperors in a row, but in other parts of its history, it had horrible succession struggles and the like. But you could have a rule that said that, say, to become monarch, you had to sacrifice your children. And and that Carthage had something kind of similar to this. So Car Carthage didn't sacrifice. Carthage was not a monarchy. No, it wasn't. But, uh, but they did sacrifice babies to their gods. It seems to me that the kind of person who would sacrifice his children to become king is the kind who's more ruthless and power hungry than the ordinary, uh, rather than less. Good point. Uh, good point. So uh, that seems like not not likely to be a great idea. Well, I mean, but I think the interesting question you have people make the claim. I, I don't think irrationally that you would like Austro-Hungary as an empire, as ruled by a fairly wise monarch, did a better job of keeping together all the disparate ethnicities and warring factions of that what, – what we later saw when it became different countries uh, than, than, again, what, what came after. And maybe that's actually better. Than, so than it authors. may be that what they came up with was better than the available alternatives given the 
foreshadowed existence of a three-eyed raven where you could make king, uh, though there are, I think, other possibilities that they could have adopted, such as if not involving the general population, at least involving the merchant class, involving giving autonomy to cities and provinces and uh, the like. Uh, but you know, a lot depends historically on what the actual alternatives are. Maybe the Austro-Hungarian monarchy functioned better than some of those alternatives. On the other hand, its problems were one of the main causes of World War One, yes, uh, which didn't work out. That was a downside, well, yes. Either for the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the world, or for Europe <laughs> the more, and the world more generally. Yeah. Okay, so so were you okay with Brand sitting on the Iron Throne as both a narrative tactic and and sort of? I guess I was okay with part. it, given everything that had come before. I do think there are many other things in season seven and eight which were done very badly uh, and had they been done well, then it might well have come to a point where putting Bran on the throne was not the most logical or reasonable outcome. I already mentioned the badly flawed way that they made Daenerys Targaryen into a villain. Uh, the way they handled the war in season seven was also badly flawed. There are many uh, plot holes and internal contradictions that developed. So I think uh, Plot-wise, almost everything from the end of season six onward, with, with a few exceptions, was handled pretty poorly. Uh, and uh, I have some sympathy for those fans who did the petition, which says, you know, redo season eight, <laughs> but with competent writers, uh, maybe redo season seven as well. I think the issue was not that the writers were incompetent, but that they wanted to finish everything quickly. And so, and they wanted those seasons to actually have fewer episodes than previous seasons did, albeit in some cases somewhat longer episodes. And as a result, they weren't able to successfully juggle all the different balls that they had in the air. Uh, and therefore, you know, both the war in season seven and the way things were done in season eight with both the Night King plot and then the later plot with the fight against Cersei and the ultimate settlement, they seem rushed and inconsistent with what we saw of many of these characters before. But given everything that had happened up to that point, the settlement with Bran as king was at least somewhat reasonable, albeit not for the reasons that were given by Tyrion, uh, but because Bran seems likely to be both a reasonably capable ruler and yet one that's not threatening to the other characters in the way that uh, obviously the uh, Lannister monarchs uh, had been and before them Robert Baratheon to some extent and of course Daenerys particularly after she uh, turned mass murderer. I would also just add to that that you probably – you definitely weren't the only one that was largely disappointed by the last two seasons. But I think a lot of that is to do – due to the fact that in the first, let's say, five seasons, we were used to these – grotesque scenes in some cases in these over dramatic scenes that brought us like great entertainment and brought like came with a lot of surprise and then in the last maybe two seasons or so we were expecting them to go over the top and they they didn't because like you could look through twitter feeds and they're like everyone's wondering about who's gonna die and everyone everyone sounded so savage in the fact that they wanted certain people to die like in these very grotesque and just gruesome ways and we never really got that so i feel like a lot of people don't feel like fulfilled in the way we watched the last two seasons because we never really got those scenes that were like over the top as say the red wedding was it may be although i think the burning of king's landing was as over the top as anything else uh and certainly many more people actually died there and many more innocent people than in the red wedding uh and i think a lot of prominent characters did in fact die during the last two seasons, albeit many of the deaths were packed into just the last few episodes of 
uh, season eight. Uh, so my complaint was not so much that not enough people died or they didn't die in gruesome enough ways or something like that, uh, but rather yeah, – Natalie that, sounds awfully bloodthirsty. Uh, yeah. The plotting that led to people dying or for that matter, other people living and surviving was done very poorly compared to previous seasons. The Red Wedding, although horrible to watch, it makes sense as a plot development both in the books – uh, and uh, also in the TV series, Rob Stark had made a genuine mistake in alienating the phrase. Uh, and it was from the phrase perspective, the Red Wedding also made sense and that a Lannister alliance was more profitable to them than what the Stark alliance seemed to be. Uh, so it made sense, even though obviously it was horrible uh, to watch in a certain sense. Uh, on the other hand, the way the strategy of season seven and the war worked didn't make much sense. The uh, uh, Nary's decision to burn the city down after it had already surrendered when there was nothing to be gained by destroying it and a good deal of potential to be lost, uh, that didn't make much sense. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were quite a few other things uh, like that as well. And also just, you know, obvious uh, plot holes and contradictions. Like in one episode, the ballistas that shoot down dragons are extremely accurate and have a very rapid rate of fire. In the very next episode, their rate of fire is very slow and they're inaccurate. And Daenerys easily destroys all of them with just one dragon. Or we reconstructed King's Landing in about 10 minutes so that we could have a council meeting. That was it, that was somewhat rushed, but it's actually not clear how much of King's so Landing sure how much the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right yeah. Maybe only a few buildings have been reconstructed. And for what it's worth, we at least know that the brothels have not been reconstructed. <laughs> uh, at the very last council meeting, they take time to discuss uh, you know reconstruction of brothels, which seems to be an urgent priority for the oh, – we saw the new, ruler, the new rulers of Westeros. So would you venture to guess on what I – mean, we'll probably see more Game of Thrones franchises going forward in a variety. I know some are already planned out but uh, but in turn, maybe even showing what happens after. But would you venture to sort of give an idea based on the way – where we see the political system now? Is there any hope for Westeros? In the, might they break out of this wealth trap? Uh, might they Might they have a 200-year – might they get that hockey stick uh, and get, get a little bit of wealth going and something going because they have some stability and, and maybe for a while? Can can live their lives, especially the common people. Yeah. So setting aside the issue of whether Bran will live for thousands yes. of years <laughs> yeah. and become the god emperor of Westeros, <laughs> assuming he has a more normal lifespan, it's possible that we will now see a political system that's somewhat more decentralized and also somewhat more stable. Also, it's clear that there are people like Sam Tarley and others, both within the maesters and outside of them, uh, who want to do technological innovation in the like and uh, that that can grow on itself, especially with a period of prolonged peace. We haven't talked much about Essos, but it looks like through Daenerys' efforts, slavery has been abolished in at least most of Essos. And we already know that Essos has a significant merchant class and commercial class. So we might see more economic development there, though we don't know for sure what's going to happen in the short term. Uh, one of the annoying aspects of season seven and eight is they tell us absolutely nothing what happened in Essos, this region that we spent a lot of time in in the first six seasons. Uh, maybe it's that none of the characters we're supposed to be following are there. But even so, it seems like Essos has at least as much economic potential as Westeros uh, and the two can help stimulate each other. So it seems like at the end, we're in a situation similar to late medieval or early modern Europe where there's the potential for a lot of development. Uh, whether that's actually what George R. R. Martin envisions, I don't know.
Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.